And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show and an episode in which we answer questions from our listeners. That's right, it's listener questions. We really worked hard on the title there. My name is Ryan Bailey and joining me today is a man who believes the greatest movie montage of all time is from Backdraft, Taylor Rockwell. I mean, it is. And hello, Ryan. I I do love that movie. It is a formative movie in my childhood, which is then immediately troubling because I realize the age I would have had to have been to watch that on VHS. And it's not good. It's not a great way to uh, begin your childhood, but it is a good way to begin your childhood if you want to be a firefighter. Uh, I will happily continue this backdraft monologue, but I feel like I should take a breath. I'm vaguely remembering backdraft. Was it Kurt Russell? Uh, I mean, it was Kurt Russell in multiple roles, playing his own father, first of all. But then there's Robert De Niro, there's Donald Sutherland, there's Billy Baldwin, the second best Baldwin, I think. Uh, Jennifer Jason Leigh in there. It's, it's, It's a packed squad, my friend. Man, I need to go back and visit that movie. And what what did the montage consist of, by the way? Well, it's it's just hilarious to me because it's supposed to be like the firefighter montage of all of them, you know, doing all the different firefighter things. But kind of the premise of the movie is maybe Billy Baldwin shouldn't be a firefighter. And the montage sort of shows that, that like everybody else is good <laughs> at it. He's just sort of standing around being awkward and not knowing how to work a hydrant. Uh, so it works in that way, too. But it's just, you know, it's the 80s montage. It's 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 just good stuff. It's Kurt Russell being intense. What more do you need? Is the montage send-up, was that Team America or South Park, where it was, you need a montage, show some improvement with every frame? Uh, I think that, it was, uh, I think that was Team America. I get it confused (laughs) with the song from Basketball about, like, what the character is actually going through in the moment, but I think it's Team America. spinning out of control. I know all the words, (laughs) Show a lot of things happening at once, remind everyone (laughs) of what's going on, and with every shot, show a little improvement to show it all would take too long. That is called a montage.
There we go. All right, we've talked far too long about this. Let's introduce <laughs> a man who has spicy things to say about Inter Miami on Twitter, Joe Lowry. Oh, it wasn't even that spicy, right? Uh-oh. Compared to what other folks were tweeting about that Paul Tenorio article, I think I picked like the eighth juiciest nugget to make fun of them for. Um, I can I can up the spice spiceometer. Is that a Ooh. thing? It's a thing now. At least you went top eight, MySpace style. I like that. <laughs> uh, the article is: We launched a brand, not a team. Insight into Miami's disastrous start in MLS by Paul Tenorio. Very much recommended. Did Did you enjoy the article, Joe? Oh, it's it's so good. It, it, it's a great piece of work from Paul. Generally. And it also just reminds me of how much Inter Miami goofed, which is also a weird, I don't know, it's a weird joy to watch something implode. Not like I'm not wishing ill on them, but that's kind of like a guilty pleasure, right? I think watching just this Miami team that's been rumored for so long and then it actually happens and now they're, they're, I don't know, they're just falling apart before our eyes. There's some weird twisted satisfaction that I found in that. You hate to see it. Joe, <laughs> do you mind? I, I have a question for Joe for a moment because we haven't gotten to talk about this. Joe, I remember you and Jordan doing like a pretty in-depth breakdown of Diego Alonso, yeah. like when he was first hired. And this is like a larger question, I guess. But like, do you do you think about that and realize like how little we actually know about what's going on with teams? Because you can sort yeah. of watch a coach's tactics and what they've done in previous games games and think you know them but if there's all this craziness behind the scenes and the players are being sort of assembled without the coach knowing it does change things a little bit right it's it's that Diego Alonso situation it's the Gabriel Heinze situation yeah you can go back and look at their past teams and say wow they had success these are the things they do well these are some of the characteristics of their teams but they go and it's either a toxic work environment as it seems to have been in Atlanta with some really dogmatic personalities or there's just absolute chaos going on behind the scenes in, in Miami and the player personnel is all wrong. I mean, there's so many factors here. It is really hard. And I have sympathy for some of these clubs. It is really hard to find the right person to lead your your personnel and to lead your club and to lead your, your team on the field. And uh, all that said, they should be better at it than they are. Well, at least they got that stadium in downtown Miami, which was the uh, the idea all along. Right, 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 right. Also here, we've got one other guy here. It's the man who joins us after an intense period designing Puma's third kits. That's right. He's a designer as well. It's Graham Rudman. Don't put that on my name, Ryan. <laughs> Don't start that vicious evil on rumors. Me. This, this is how things get nasty on social media if people learn that think that that was me. I mean, I, I honestly don't. I have no words. I have no words. So on Wednesday, I believe it was, Puma dropped uh, simultaneously the third kits of many of their teams uh, whose, whose apparel they make. All kind of the same idea, all look like um, sort of $10 shirts from, I don't know, not not a soccer store. <laughs> it's like it's like it's like a a, a football shirt that your mum or a distant relative yeah. buys you for Christmas, and you're too ashamed to tell them that actually it's not official in any way, but you have to wear it anyway because <laughs> they bought it for your Christmas. That's what they look like. Graham, do you remember the thing at like Target where it was like the white MLS kit and the black MLS kit, and it just said yeah. like MLS on it? Like, doesn't this feel like it should be next to that? Like, you should yeah. get the generic MLS kit home and away, and then one of these generic shirts based on your location. Yeah, exactly. Rob Lowe goes into a Target. First of all, he picks up the NFL cap, then he gets the MLS kit, and then he gets one of these Puma third kits. <laughs> that Rob Lowe hat was literally the best baseball cap I've ever seen. Also, um, I think this week, Graham, did you see Juventus's away kit, the blue and yellow, which is kind of like the blue and yellow they wore in the 90s with Sony on it, except terrible <laughs> I actually haven't seen that kit, but I know exactly the kit you're talking about with Sony on it. Have mm. they done a, a version of the it? The old Ravinelli one. Um, they've yeah. done. They've kind of paid tribute to it, but like 
it, it poorly <laughs> i think you see uh, the way they've done it so oh i don't know what has been in the tea of these uh kit designers for this year but something funky is going on maybe we're all just too old for it and we're not all 18 and uh these aren't designed for us is that it maybe yeah know. the kids the kids are the problem see i think those <laughs> those look like early 2000s shirts to me like pd pablo would look very good in that man city shirt because those are kind of like north carolina colors never mind but uh like they look very early 2000s to me and, mm. and i wonder like is that where we are in fashion have we gone back to the early 2000s because i don't know if that needs to happen we've gone somewhere strange and foreign to me as grandpa simpson once said to a young homer I'm going deep on the Simpsons quotes. So let's start the questions. I'm going too I mean, far. That landed as well as my Petey Pablo reference. Uh, so I, th- I think you're in good company, my friend. I'd like to think it did better than that, Taylor. All right. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, will get, we will get a Petey Pablo gif in response to this show. You have my word. And it won't be from me. It's going to be from you. <laughs> <laughs> Not Taylor on Twitter. We'll be posting that uh, one. Uh, with a little moustache and some glasses on over your uh, LinkedIn picture. That's what it's going to be. That's what it's going to be on the profile. Perfect. Anywho, this is a listener questions episode. About time we got to some of those listener questions. We're going to kick off today with Michael Hastings Black, not to be confused with Michael Ian Black. I probably made that joke before, but hello, Michael. Thank you very much for the question. When and where did the current trend of attacking wingbacks begin? Taylor, perhaps we should start off by establishing what is a wingback? How does it differ from a fullback? And uh, get all inverted pyramid on us, if you will. Uh, I shall do my best. A fullback, I think, traditionally is in a back four. Uh, and it, like, the name itself dates to the time when they were fully back. They were fully defenders. There was very little or no attacking required or asked of them. They were staying fully back and defending. Wingbacks, usually more linked to a back three, at least in my mind. And they are, if you look at the word and break it down, the sort of combination of the two. There are still defenders. They are still backs. You got to get back. You got to do your defensive job, but you're also functioning on that wing as an attacking player as well. You're providing width, you're providing crosses. So you're doing the defensive job, but you're still much more attacking than you would be if you were a traditional fullback. These days, I think it's a little more blended because you have Jordi Alba, for an example, Marcelo, for example, being attacking fullbacks. There are no other ones, especially not from Scotland, just those two. Uh, (laughs) and, And so you do get attacking fullbacks and that can be a thing and then you can have wingbacks which can also be attacking i think the major difference at this point is just back three versus back four yeah and oh, yeah you can and you technically can use wingbacks in a back four there's a team based in liverpool which has some non-scottish fullbacks and things i think that, that, that do that in a four three three joe for me the wingback when i when someone asked me about the history of the wingback the first name that comes to me is roberto carlos who kind of made that position famous with real madrid um my understanding is with a, he had a big falling out with inter milan and roy hodgson by the way inter milan because um he was misused in a back forward and he was he was uh much like um what's the movie i'm a peacock chief you gotta let me fly he was not allowed to fly in that in that formation inter milan uh so he it, it was Madrid that he flourished, but I, I'm sure the wingback history goes back further than Mr. Carlos, Joe. Yeah, it, it does. And to just get this out up front, I'm going to use wingback to just mean outside defender, whether that's in a back three or back four or back five, whatever. I think it's simpler. Hopefully that gets to the heart of what Michael's question was getting at, but I think that's just an easier way for us not to get confused. As far as more attacking outside defenders go, I traced it back. Well, I didn't trace it back. I found doing my research that apparently early versions of attacking outside defenders popped up back in the 1950s in Hungary. I feel like every 
soccer tactic yep. evolution started in Hungary in the 1950s. Money bag, yards, and, yeah, I mean, it's true, right? So in this particular iteration of the Hungarian national team, manager Gustav Sebes started using his outside defenders in a back three. Not not the not the wing backs outside of the back three, but really what we would think of now as the outside center backs in a back three. He started pushing those players forward. And so he would he would often have just one defender back in the back, and there'd be some midfielders that would hold more. But that was really, as far as I could find, the first example of a team pushing their outside, quote-unquote, defenders, wingbacks, fullbacks, whatever you want to call them, forward. And then later it was developed in the 1950s, again, this time by Brazil, the, the next – if we're playing, uh, I don't know, tactics bingo in tactical history bingo, Brazil's also on that bingo list. It's going to get called every time. Brazil used attacking fullbacks in a back four, so the outside defenders outside of two center backs. They used those attacking fullbacks in the 1958 World Cup, and they're believed to have been the only team to have done that. And so they really started to popularize that 4-2-4 shape, pioneering the usage of four defenders and also allowing those two outside defenders, the fullbacks, to push high. And then that kind of transitions into the 60s and 70s. And then in the 90s and, and early 2000s, you get back to the Cafu and Roberto Carlos generation, and those players are really bombing forward. And, and then I skipped a lot in the middle of that oral history, but now you're at today, and Scotland's out here running Kieran and Tierney and uh, Andy Robertson up that left side and, and having some nice success with it. Yeah, it does seem there's a lot of Brazilian heritage, or Brazil has a lot of heritage with wingbacks, I should say. As you mentioned, Dani Alves is Marcelo, Carlos Alberto, Cafu, Roberto Carlos. Seems they're quite. It's 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 in it's it's in the uh, in the fabric of Brazilian soccer, if you will, Joe. Yeah, I mean, Brazil's just good at soccer. You know, they're good at developing <laughs> yeah. players. And I think I love that Roberto Carlos, uh, Roy Hodgson story you mentioned there, Ryan, because I, I read something similar. And he's like, yeah, I, you know, we had to stay back. We had to stay back. And I'm, I don't want to do that stuff, right? I want to go forward. And I think that is ingrained in the soccer culture in Brazil in terms of how they play and, and how they approach games. So I think there is something to the more advanced attacking fullback development profile in Brazilian soccer. There's not a position on the pitch that Brazil can't turn into yeah, an attacking exactly. position. Oh, they see, we see a goalkeeper. They see someone who can take penalties. Uh, that's really how uh, how Brazil views soccer generally. So it doesn't surprise me too much that that wing backs have so much of their roots in, in Brazilian soccer. Anyone, anyone have a favorite wing back? It's Roberto Carlos, hands down for me. Taylor, any thoughts? Is it? Is well, it I, think I, I think I'm a little bit more like nerdy I guess than you all because I am sort of sticking to the back three distinction and I would say that in my mind like you have certainly uh Serie A where you have the back three that becomes a back five and I think of it as being more defensive even if it was originally meant to be attacking I think of the more modern style of an attacking wing back in like a three four three and in my mind, that originates with Johan Cruyff at Barcelona. And I might be wrong. Like, I probably, I'm sure there will be football historians out there who will say, no, it was actually this 1950s team. And then they led to that, and they led to that, and they led to Cruyff. But for Cruyff, going to Barcelona and looking at the personality he had and switching it to a 3-4-3. And by the way, that back three featured Ronald Koeman playing in a back three. I'm sure he really enjoys being told these days that Barcelona have never played in a back three and that what he's doing is sacrilege because he might disagree. And he had Pep Guardiola playing ahead of him. But when it comes to like those marauding wingbacks i i i i i feel uncomfortable saying this i really like andy robertson i think he's just such <laughs> a good player with like i think with the way he developed coming over from whole city and just not standing out like initially and seeming like that could be a good bit of business but like i'm not sure what's going on there and then suddenly he's this unplayable <laughs> aspect of liverpool <laughs> 
I'm waiting. Wait, I'm waiting wait, for for Graham's Sorry. enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but just just I think he also brings that level of like spice that you want. Like Gary Neville always did that for Man United. He was definitely not an spice attacking boy. fullback or wingback, but he just had that like I'm gonna hold on to a handshake too long. I'm gonna get in a player's face for just a couple extra seconds. Andy Robertson brings that as well as the attack. So I do love him for more attacking fullback. I do love uh, Marcelo and Roberto Carlos before him. I feel like they're like father and son of the attacking fullback at Real Madrid. Graham, any thoughts on your fave? Is it is it a Scott? I mean, unsurprisingly, yes, it is a Scott, but it's actually not Andy Robertson. I'm going to go for the other one. I, I, I've always been a, a big Kieran Tierney fan. I just love how kind of unassuming he is. You, you get a you get a, a real level of consistency from Tierney, which I think Scottish national team fans appreciate because Andy Robertson, while he had an excellent Euros, actually, he was one of that's the best we've seen of him in a Scotland shirt. He hasn't normally um, or consistently found his best form for Scotland. So I'm going to go with Tierney. And also, you've got to like a Premier League footballer who walks into every stadium that he plays in with his kit in a plastic Tesco bag rather than a <laughs> Louis Vuitton bag, as most of his teammates tend to have. So Tierney's the one for me. Wonderful. I have I have a more modern one that I that I should have mentioned. Uh, Spinazzola in this past Euros, I ah. think what was the most exciting player for me because he was doing so many different things but doing them all so well and it was genuinely really sad when he got injured and this is me having very little rooting interest in Italy but everything he did this summer w- was pretty fun to watch from start to finish. That's good. Um, Joe, I'll ask you for your favourite or if you prefer to answer this question, do you like the current trend of attacking wingbacks? I'll answer both. Absolutely, I do. I, it, it makes the game fun. You get players like Danny Alves who is my favourite fullback or outside defender bombing forward and combining with Messi in that Guardiola heyday era of Barcelona. I mean, that stuff, that, those are some of my favorite moments on, on the field when you get a fullback overlapping and they can combine with that outside attacker. It is, it's so much fun. And I like really the, the most modern evolution, I would say, of, of the fullback position, of the outside defender position is pushing one forward and then tucking the other one inside to play as that outside center back, really. And that's what Italy did. They had Spinazzola pushing forward on the left to almost play as the left winger and they had the right-sided fullback tucking inside to become a right-sided center back. And apparently that had roots in Brazil early on. Stop me if anybody's surprised by that in the 70s and things like that. But it's coming back. Soccer is cyclical and we're seeing it again. I just enjoy watching the game change and watching managers take one tactic and, and tweaking it slightly and then adapting it and applying it to their team I think it's a lot of fun uh, but the answer to the question is Danny Alves Ryan excellent answer Joseph <laughs> and thank you very much Michael Hastings Black for that question let's get in another question before we go to break this one from Shreyas Romani hello Shreyas hope you're doing well Shreyas was pursuing through, perusing through a list of Premier League managers and noticed that some like Pep Guardiola Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Jurgen Klopp have the title of manager which Thomas Tuchel Dean Smith and Marcelo Bielsa had the title of head coach, alternately. So what is the difference between that? Now, if I may have a quick stab at that, this one, because it feels like a a reasonably simple differentiation. For me, in my perspective, and there there might be some differences in, in, in language usage here, but a manager is someone who manages the team as well as coaching it. So they will have a more holistic view of the team. They might look after transfers, get more involved in the business and the admin side, maybe even have a little sniff over the academy as well. And if I think of a manager, certainly in the modern era, it would be Arsene Wenger, who was, if if we were to use filmic language, he'd be an auteur director. He did everything. Whereas my understanding of a head coach is that they're there just to coach the first team and will typically have someone like a sporting director to take care of the business side of the technical team. Uh, Graham, does that sound about right to you? 
Yeah, I think if if you're going to go down the kind of traditional lines, that's absolutely spot on. Um, the three the three that are mentioned in the question for head coach are good examples of a traditional head coach, as you as you mentioned there, Ryan. So Tuchel, Dean Smith, and Bielsa. So they all work under. Um, under sporting directors or director of football. So Aston Villa, Dean Smith works under Johan Lange. Um, and Tuchel works under Marina, whose second name I can never pronounce. Granovskaya? There we go. That's Possibly. better than I could have done. And then Bielsa works under Victor Orta at Leeds. Now, there can be some differences. So I would say Tuchel and Dean Smith, that is pretty much spot on. It seems like they work in quite a rigid, particularly Tuchel. I mean, it seems like Tuchel has very little say over over the players that actually arrive and the players that are signed and contracts that are handed out and that has been a point of contention at Chelsea in, in, in years gone by with some managers Antonio Conte comes to mind not getting their way but the, the lines can be blurred I mean Bielsa's maybe a, a perfect one there he is a head coach he has he is um, primarily um, his responsibility is to coach the players on the pitch but he quite clearly has a very big say on the overall direction of that club so there's probably a bit more collaboration with uh, Victor Orta than maybe uh, Tuchel has with Marina. On you go, Ryan. <laughs> Granovskaya. Graham, go. Just, go, just go the Chelsea route like they did with Espilicueta. If he becomes Dave, 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 just call her like Debbie or something and we'll be fine. <laughs> right, okay. I'm just going to call her Marina. And the thing is, with, with Marina, uh, Marina like, she's a player. Uh, yeah, Marina G. With Marina G, she's she's someone that I've written about a lot. I've just never been able, I think maybe because commentators don't say her name that often, so I don't really have a, a frame of reference or a reference point. But um, if we're looking at the, the kind of managers that are named, I think that's actually the, the most interesting one. So of those three, Guardiola, Solskjaer and Klopp, I would say Solskjaer was the only one who was actually appointed as a traditional manager. So obviously at Manchester United, Sir Alex Ferguson was the quintessential football manager um, where he had control over all football-related things at the club, you know, scouting, contracts, transfers, coaching, all that sort of thing. And Manchester United didn't really have the structure of some of the rivals when Solskjaer was appointed. They kind of do now with John Murtaugh and Darren Fletcher and and kind of um, sporting director's role. But I guess that manager title has just stuck. With with Guardiola and Klopp, it's interesting because they have gone into, particularly Guardiola, there is a a director of football in Begeristein at at Manchester City. So the, the only thing I can really think of, unless someone else has a better suggestion, is that that manager title is kind of just a nod to soccer tradition more than anything else. And that the manager is... You know, it's, it's seen as giving them more responsibility, even if actually in, in actual fact it's, they don't have much more responsibility. I don't know really about that one. Yeah, that's that's possible. And I suppose something I'd ask you, um, Taylor, is, is the semantics of it. Because in American parlance, nevertheless, you'd use head coach, but not manager. But in England, you can interchange them a little more, which might explain the Pep Guardiola usage. Mm-hmm. Is that possible? Yeah, I- I do think it's a little bit like literally these days where didn't they just change the definition of literally to mean not literally? Uh, like I feel like it, you basically can use them interchangeably now and I don't think many people will bat an eye. But there is that distinction that uh, Graham and Joe have, have drawn pretty well or Graham has drawn pretty well. I can't remember who's talked already. <laughs> it's been, <laughs> just me. It's been a long, just a long time. All right, cool. <laughs> Joe just said smart things about the last question. Uh, but yeah, to Graham's point, I think it is that distinction is pretty straightforward, Ryan, and I think the point you made as well. I think, like, I do think of Sir Alex Ferguson as being the definitive manager, but I think that's because later in his career, he's much more delegating first team training and focused on larger picture things. Uh, but Ryan, I know where you're coming through from with Wenger, though, because there's all the stories about him changing the diet and restricting alcohol consumption. And I do think of that as 
management as team management versus not quite a like hands-off approach but more of a I'm coming in to do a job and you all will bring me the players I need I don't really get a say in that I'll find a way to make it work and so to some extent I feel like coaches have to be a bit more adaptable whereas managers maybe have more of a vision for how things should go coaches have to sort of work with what they have and adjust accordingly with Pep Guardiola I'm speculating here it could could it be that he he's he was such a big name that he comes in is like, I'm not going to be head coach I need more say than that and because he's mates with his Catalan buddy Bajuristan mm-hmm. it kind of is allowed a manager title which gives him a little bit more leeway even though they have the structure which would pertain usually to a head coach. Well, I'm even confused by like Bielsa being a coach because everything we know about Bielsa is that he has documents and spreadsheets and all of the data in the world about which players they should be signing. Uh, and so maybe though, when you look at the way Leeds functions, this gets to Guardiola. When you look at the way Leeds functions, Bielsa has his ideas and what he would like, but those aren't the end all be all. He is not giving them a list of transfer targets. I think they are going to him to ask him for his input. And my assumption is that that's where sort of Pep has that title for City, that he's being given the opportunity to chime in on players or say, hey, this is an area that I think we need to look at. And then someone else goes and does that work. And and that's where maybe he's doing both things. He is still running the coaching and being heavily involved, but also doing the technical side too. Indeed. All right, Shreyas, I think we just about got there. Joe, do you have any dazzling insight to add to this one? I think we pretty much covered it, but uh, please, please go ahead. I think so too. I really think a lot of this is semantics. And yeah, there are differences in certain clubs and with people where they are. I'm not saying every work environment is the same in that regard, but there's just no way you can convince me that Tuchel and Bielsa don't have a major say in which players are coming in and which players are leaving. And so that, that really blurs the lines for me. Mm, poor old Tammy Abraham. That's all I'll say. <laughs> Let's take a break. We'll be back very shortly after these messages. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, guess who's back? It's us four with listener questions. Kenneth Seiden comes up next with a question for us, gents. Could soccer actually be played without headers and would it still be entertaining? Uh, Graham, this feels like just five-a-side rules where it can't go above head height. What do you feel? (laughs) Yeah, well, it does. And and the thing is, when I was uh, a kid, I don't know about anyone else here, but particularly when you were playing indoor, so we would play... I mean, perhaps unsurprisingly for for Scotland, we would play uh, football indoor when I was a kid quite often, and you wouldn't be allowed to kick the ball above, I think it was shoulder height, to, or it might have been above head height, but basically you, the ball had to be kind of picked up and put down on the ground if it went a certain height. So I guess it's not it's not such an alien idea when you, you really think about it. And actually, I think in Scotland, um, for, for children, heading has actually already been 
already been uh, kind of outlawed, if that's the right term. Yeah, but it, it, this yeah. is an interesting question, one I've, cons- I've considered before, um, in terms of how heading the, or banning heading would change soccer. And I think if it, w- it would be the most fundamental change to the sport we've kind of seen in the professional era, that doesn't necessarily mean it shouldn't happen. But I really think it would be quite, it would be pretty big for the game. Taylor, it could be played without headers. Should it be played without headers? Nope, don't think so. Uh, I, I think like, and even when you are playing those sort of five-a-side rules, in my mind, it's with smaller goals or it's with a heavier ball. You're using like a futsal ball, which lends itself to not going up in the air. Like soccer balls in general just want to be hit very hard. They want to be put top corner. Like how can you outlaw the ball going above the head if you're keeping the goal height the same way it is? I understand where it, where the concern comes from. And, and even, uh, from Kenneth's question, he's linking to a study that found former professionals are three and a half times more likely to die, uh, from dementia than the general public. Risk of neurogenitive disease in former professional footballers varies by player position and career length, but it tends to be defenders who suffer the most. So there's an idea that if you get rid of heading, you sort of nullify that threat. I will say, and this is just like my opinion, I'm sure there is science that goes a different way, but I feel like the larger issue with heading is not the heading of the ball itself. It's all of the surrounding events. And I think that's a big reason why they've changed it in youth soccer here in the U.S. is because kids don't really know how to properly head a ball at a young age. And if you're relying on an amateur coach or a parent to teach you how to head, they might not either. So there's that argument for youth soccer. But a lot of it is also kids don't really know their limits and don't know how not to go flying into somebody while trying to win a header. And and if you don't have control of your body... That's when you're going to get head-to-head collisions more often or elbows flying around. And that's why I think they've limited to some extent at the youth level for both of those reasons. At the professional level, I think it's more so the physicality. And I think it's a big reason why defenders tend to suffer more is because they're throwing themselves into challenges. They're using their head to block shots, to challenge for things in the air. They're catching an elbow. They're catching a head as as the ball's flicked on. And I think maybe policing, more strongly policing those infractions, that contact, really stopping play as soon as there's an elbow or the speculation of an elbow. They're supposed to do that now when it comes to a head injury. But I think if there was more policing around the contact before and after a header, I think maybe that helps solve some of the problems because so often – If there's a foul before the header occurs, you get that called almost every single time. But if it's after the fact, if there's contact, sometimes that is allowed to go because like, oh, he got ball cleanly and then there was contact. But if a player is out of control or if a player is not able to defend themselves from that contact, I think that's where you run into a more likely uh, result being an injury. Joe, come with me on a journey to a dystopian future where everyone's (laughs) wearing bad Puma third kits and there are no headers. (laughs) Are you entertained? Yeah, I am. I mean, yeah, that was it, basically Man City. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's the present. It's, it's funny, though, because, Graham, that's actually kind of my answer to this question. I think soccer would absolutely still be entertaining without headers. It would be very, very different. Don't get me wrong. But my favorite parts of soccer are when the ball's on the ground, man. The ball's either on the ground and we're seeing that quick combination playing. We're seeing nice attacking movements. Or my other favorite part of soccer is when it's flying towards the back of the net and it's not really at risk of hitting anybody's head anyway. It's a shot on goal in most situations. That's not going to be blocked with a head. It happens sometimes, but not very often. Those are, I think, my two favorite parts of this game. Neither one of those things involves the ball hitting somebody's head. So I I think I am team 
this would be fine. It would be weird to watch games, and I think the championship would have to disband. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, overall, I don't see I don't see a real issue with this. The one thing I will say, it would dramatically change what happens in the box, right? A lot of goals are scored on set pieces, especially corner kicks. We see, well, maybe not a ton of goals scored directly from corner kicks, but that happens a lot in a game. And heading the ball and attacking the ball defensively with your head is a big part of the sport. And I think that would be the most jarring change. Michael Cox wrote an article about this after The Guardian had published this story, talking about the potential link between heading and, and dementia. And his suggestion, Cox's suggestion, was maybe we just ban headers in the field outside of the two 18-yard boxes. Apparently, 74% of headers in the Premier League over the past three seasons have happened outside the boxes. But those are the least important headed actions, right? They're not close to goal. And really, those are not essential to how the game is played necessarily. It would still change things, yes, but not essential, I would argue. So I actually, I I really like that idea from Cox to just keep those extra 26% of headers in in the boxes, get rid of all the rest, and you've just dramatically cut the risk there. That would really change the game though, Joe. Even if they aren't uh, crucial areas of the field where those headers are taking place, every goal kick would change. Yeah, I mean, I mean, but there are ways you can still bring the ball down, right? Instead of heading it, you bring it down with your chest. You'd have to change how you attack the ball. And I'm not saying this would be easy to do. But I think if a change, I'm not, I'm glad, Ryan, you didn't ask me the question you asked Taylor, should this happen? Because I don't have the information to actually answer that in a responsible way. But man, (laughs) like, like there are ways to do this if the change does need to be made. If, if medicine and science say this change needs to be made to make the game safe, I, I mean, I'm still watching games and I'm guessing the rest of us are too. I think if you took soccer and you basically changed the name of it and then tried to experiment with this stuff, I think you could get away with some of it. I think the idea of adding more restrictions and regulations into the game itself is where I think people would start to get frustrated because basically as soon as you have to draw new lines on the pitch, I think people don't like it and the purists will say you're changing things and I think that's what would be required because... There's no way that a player is going to wait for someone to bring down a goal kick before they challenge, so it probably necessitates a build-out line, and the opposition can't cross that before the goal kick is taken, and the goal kick has to be taken short. And I think that's probably what you're looking at, and and that's where I say if you're changing, if you're not call, if you're call, calling it like soccer 2.0, and then you're experimenting with it, I think like you can get away with a little bit more because you're just trying stuff out. But I do like the idea then of like on a corner kick, if you, if anyone's ever played indoor. When there's a penalty and everybody has to go to midfield and then sprint back to try to make a, a defensive play, I like the idea of like the defensive team being allowed to have three defenders in the box and everybody else has to start at midfield and sprint back to get on defense. But then the team taking taking the corner like can't uh, like boom it in. They have to take it short and pass the ball. Like uh, you could you could mess around with it that way. But the reason why I say I'm not in favor of it is because it essentially requires new regulations because that ball is going to go over the head every single time. And then do you stop play? Is an indirect free kick? Do you have to call it back? I think things slow down really quickly without some sort of like physical restrictions in place. And and also Americans would be blamed. Oh, of course. <laughs> like, of course. Like, I, I just, you know, any change in soccer, yeah. Super League, yeah, that was America's fault. My dad blames America for basically everything, you know, so if the price of his newspaper goes <laughs> up, that was America's fault. Um, so, yeah, if they change the rules of soccer, somehow that would be America's fault as well. 
I'd love to chat with your dad about how Brexit was America's fault because, um, you know, I've been looking oh, for someone Oh, he'd find to blame. a way to link it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we separated from you all. We gave you the idea of, like, if you're not physically attached to a place, why are they governing you? I feel like you could probably blame America for oh, Brexit. Yeah. There's ways to do it. <laughs> yeah, but that, that process kind of went well for you guys. Not so much That's over true. here. That's true. It was a little bit better thought out over here, I think. Maybe so. So let's come to this question before we leave it uh, at a slightly different angle. Do we think there is a future where this actually will happen? Let's say in 2065, when CONCACAF president Revy Rockwell declares that no <laughs> headers are allowed in in the sport anymore. Is that an actual thing that could actually happen? I feel like like the, the American football NFL would be completely barred before that happened. Yeah. Um, but do we see a world where that could be a scenario? Taylor. <sighs> <laughs> Nobody knows. <laughs> no, I, no, I don't think so. I think, I mean, there's certainly, you know, multiverse theory. There could be a world out there. But uh, I think, to your point, it probably requires the NFL being addressed first. And, like, as long as that's happening where people are just smashing into each other as a feature of the game, like, as opposed to, like, a dedicated feature of the game, I think it's harder for people to say, like, yeah, occasionally having a head-to-head contact on a, on a goal kick like I don't think that's going to be like the dramatic change that would be required. So short of somebody getting or like a number of people getting consistently hurt in very severe ways, I think maybe little adjustments and maybe stronger penalties for hit like barging into somebody from behind. I see it going that way. I don't think we ever sort of outlaw things entirely that feels like one of those sort of like future soccer commercials where like the goals expand and retract uh intermittently and the field size has changed and now we're playing on a circle like it feels like it would fit As if in that with wouldn't that, be sort of. cool i mean hey <laughs> i'm down to try stuff i always like the uh, the the training session thing where you had three full-size goals with three mm. 11 aside teams and then you could score in two goals and had to defend your own simultaneously i'm down to experiment uh i i think it just requires so many different changes to the fundamental way the game is played that it becomes a much harder sell i'm down to experiment i think i saw that on your linkedin profile anyway let's hey. move on to another question thank you very much Kenneth and my Robert- only fans <laughs> Robert Cordova is up next with another one for us. I recently watched the documentary Sir Alex Ferguson Never Give In. One chapter was on his time managing Aberdeen FC. My question, where does Alex Ferguson's time with Aberdeen rank in the importance of Scottish football? I've got a a fair idea of where this question is headed, uh, but for a little background on Fergie, played in Scotland for nearly two decades, managed East Stirlingshire, then St Mirren, then Aberdeen, and did quite well, Graham, with uh, breaking the Celtic Rangers' hegemony uh won some domestic titles won uh, a european title two european titles european cup uh cup winners cup which became the uefa cup which became the europa league uh, kind of and the european super cup as well so the question is about where that ranks in the importance of the sport in your blessed land graham yeah so what sir alex ferguson achieved at aberdeen for me and i think in the opinion of a lot of people is right up there with what the Lisbon Lions did in 1967 for anyone who, who who doesn't know the Lisbon Lions were the Celtic team who were all born I think it's about a, a 10 mile radius they were all from Glasgow and they became the first British team to win the European Cup by beating uh, Inter Milan in the 1967 European Cup final so what's what Ferguson achieved at Aberdeen is right up there with that achievement as the greatest achievement in Scottish football um, for any manager to win three Scottish league titles with a club that isn't Celtic or Rangers is almost 
incomprehensible, particularly now. Um, but for that same manager to also win four Scottish Cups and then lead his team again, not Celtic or Rangers, a Scottish team outside that, to a European trophy with a win over Real Madrid in the final is just incredible. And it seems it seems so far fetched now that I can't actually believe it happened. <laughs> that's how that's how that's how good it was. And for me, you know, obviously Ferguson went on to achieve great things at Manchester United, but you know, Manchester United are one of the biggest clubs in the world. Yes, he won the treble and so on, but they have a financial advantage over a lot of teams. Aberdeen, for me, when you look at it, was actually Ferguson's greatest managerial achievement in that nobody will ever achieve that in Scottish football. I'm pretty confident. Not in my lifetime, anyway. No one will achieve what he did with Aberdeen. Um, one of the, the best... One of the, one of the things he did was Aberdeen had good players. So they had Gordon Strachan, Alex McLeish, Willie Miller, uh, Jim Layton, who else? Eric Black scored the, that scored in the, in, in the final. But the, the most important thing that Ferguson did was eradicate the inferiority, inferiority complex that Aberdeen and basically any other Scottish club has against the big two Glasgow clubs, Celtic and Rangers. And the best example of this is, I'm sure many listeners have, have, have seen this, but after the 1983 Scottish Cup final, there's a famous post-match interview with Ferguson. And this is a game that Aberdeen actually won against Rangers. So they've won the Scottish Cup. And it's famous for Ferguson's furious reaction after the game. He he called it a disgraceful performance. And the reason for that was that he knew how much better his team was. And they didn't quite show that in the game. I think they won they won 1-0. But that just shows you the standards that he'd set for this Aberdeen, the Aberdeen team that that wasn't just enough to win. He wanted to dominate Scottish football. And we'll never see that again from a team outside Celtic and Rangers. The gulf is just too big. The gulf was big then, and Ferguson was the man who who, who bridged it. And I'm I'm just... For, for, for Aberdeen to be the, the dominant force in Scottish football for a number of years showed that it was no flash in the pan either. It was just, it's as I say, it's up there as the, the greatest Scottish football achievement. And Graham, do you have a perspective on how big a jump it would have been to go from Aberdeen at that time to Manchester United and bear in mind that in his first couple of seasons at Manchester United Fergie wasn't yeah. very successful and there were calls for him to, to get the chop and it's uh, you know with hindsight uh, probably the best that he was kept in the position there probably <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean I, I think it was still a massive jump you know Aberdeen I've been up to Aberdeen a, a number of times and one of the charming things about going to a game at Aberdeen is it's very much the same stadium as it was back when, when Ferguson was there. I've been to Old Trafford as well a number of times. So going, I know Old Trafford was modernised over a number of years, but still, going between those two cities and those two stadiums, you get a sense of the kind of the size of the clubs. Aberdeen, in the grand scheme of things, in Scottish terms, they're actually quite a big club, but in the grand scheme of things, they are quite a small club. Um, you know, 10,000 uh, uh, crowds. They do have a stadium that fills, uh, holds about 20,000, but they, they, it's around 10,000, their average crowd. And... Um, so yeah, it's still a massive jump, but I've also watched that documentary and just the way that he had such self-assurance and self-confidence that he was going to turn Manchester United round, is, it really just kind of sums up the guy. And going going into Aberdeen, he knew he was going to create a winning team um, and it's incredible that he did. Graham, if you don't mind, like in no particular order, who would you say are the most influential or meaningful Scottish managers in your mind? The two that stand out are obviously Sir Alex Ferguson, um, but Jock Steen as well as the the the, the manager of the Lisbon Lions. Um, those two are, are are very commonly mentioned as two of the greatest managers of all time. Um, similar backgrounds. That was the thing about Scottish managers and Scottish football figures in in general was you know they they all seem to 
to come from very uh, strong working class backgrounds and um, there's a lot of discussion over whether, you know, obviously it's good in a societal sense that the, the, the working class and the, and the poverty and the slums and so on is maybe not as prevalent as it was back then. But from a footballing sense, it, it, there's a discussion whether that has actually been detrimental to our game in some way that we don't have these figures anymore. So yeah, Steen and Ferguson stand head and shoulders above the rest. We've also had other good managers, of course, like Kenny Daglish and... Um, I'm trying to think of some, you know, a lot, I think recently there was a time in the Premier League. Alex there was McLeish, eight... the famed Alex McLeish, influential, <laughs> yeah. notable, wonderful. Alex McLeish, uh, <laughs> Steve Clark, who took us to our first major tournament in uh, 26 years and got a draw at Wembley against England. He deserves his place on the Scottish football Mount Rushmore. I genuinely that. thought I was going to annoy you with Alex McLeish. I don't love how seamlessly you sidestepped that. Well, Alex McLeish was a good manager until all of a sudden he wasn't a good manager. <laughs> <laughs> Did we mention Owen Coyle, the Houston Dynamo's very own? He's Irish in football terms, is he not? Is he Irish? <laughs> well, he played for Ireland, didn't he? I feel like I'm Googling at this. Pre- I thought he was Scottish. <laughs> well, I think he, he was born in Paisley, but played for Ireland. I was correct. Oh... Okay, like that, is it? <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Robert, for that question. Joe, uh, I realize uh, we did not hear your voice there. Anything to add there, or do you want us to head us into a break? <laughs> no, let's let's take a break, y'all. All right, break time it is. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences, like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach, Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, we are back. We are coming at you like Cleopatra with listener questions. Before we get to the next one, though, uh, Graham, we were just chatting in the ad break, and there is another Manchester United uh, Scottish manager who we may have missed off the list of uh, notable ma- uh, Scottish managers. Yeah, yeah, just a bit notable. I, David I, I had a feeling that, yeah, David Moyes. <laughs> it's, it was, it's Steve Keane. 
Uh, he managed Blackburn <laughs> Rovers for a couple seasons. Um, no, obviously it's Matt Busby. I had a feeling that I was missing some some big names off uh, Matt Busby, who is kind of the forefather of Manchester United in their their um, modern form, I guess you could say. Um, won the, the club's first European Cup, was obviously um, present in the, the Munich air disaster and the rebuilding of that club. He was born in Bells Hill. And then I guess fr- from a domestic point of view, one other that I would mention is also Walter Smith, who's probably the, the most successful domestic Scottish manager of all time. Won nine in a row with, with Rangers, came back, had a, a second very successful spell, took them to the UEFA Cup final. So yeah, I would mention those two. There are there are others as well. We Gordon Strachan as well. Uh, we <laughs> thank, you, thank you. You're welcome. So, <laughs> David, sorry, he, you know he's Spain. only four foot nine, little known fact. Gordon Strachan? Yeah, five, four foot nine. Four foot seven, actually. No. That seems no, very small. No, he's five small. foot six. <laughs> he's five <laughs> six. The fact that I was all close to believing that tells you how short Gordon Strachan is. <laughs> that was definitely the silence of like, I think you're wrong, but I don't know enough to say for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, from Scottish managers and a Graham-centric question, we go to a slightly Ryan-centric question from Steve Hidalgo, uh, who asks, how does the aforementioned Ryan watch FC Wimbledon given they're in League One? No offence meant, says Steve, none taken. Generally curious how people keep up with teams in lower leagues. Uh, Steve, the answer is uh, I keep up with them with great difficulty. Um, the the rights to the championship, to the EFL, I should say, uh, in the United States are with ESPN. So you can catch games on ESPN+. Plus. Uh, and if you look, there are usually three to four games per weekend, say from the championship. For example, this weekend, I looked ahead as we're recording on ESPN Plus this weekend. You can watch Bristol City against Swansea, QPR against Barnsley and Sheffield United against Huddersfield. Uh, occasionally, ESPN Plus will throw in a League One game and very, very, very occasionally a League Two game into the mix as well. So there's no League One games um, on the schedule for this weekend. But next weekend, should you be inclined, you could watch Burton versus Cheltenham. As an AC Wimbledon fan, I think I average one to two times a year seeing my team on ESPN Plus. And it's a complete lottery when it happens. Um, so that that's the... One way I watch AFC Wimbledon, and I'll say, by the way, ESPN is really, really good for smaller leagues. Uh, say for this weekend, for example, you can watch USL and League One. Pretty much the full the full docket of those games is on ESPN+. Plus. NCAA games are all on there. Uh, the Swedish Alsvenskan, the Swedish top division's on there. The Belgian Jupiler League, which is their top division. The Eredivisie's on there. Liga Amekis is on there. Lots and lots of stuff there that you can take advantage on ESPN+. Plus. If you don't have it already, you definitely should. But for Steve's question on how I would watch AFC Wimbledon uh, or how I could do week in, week out, a little thing called iFollow, um, which is a sort of proprietary service that the EFL offers. It's it's done so internationally since 2017. It's a streaming service that they have domestically and internationally. Slightly different product. It varies because the international product, you're allowed to see 3 p.m. local kickoffs. um, And the domestic one, you're not. Although last season, correct me if I'm wrong, Graham, you were allowed to see 3 p.m. kickoffs on iFollow because uh, because there was no attendances because of uh, the COVID pandemic. Um, So on iFollow, uh, by my count, by manual counting, 58, uh, 48 of the 52 teams in the EFL are on there. And the others, the other four, just use their own streaming services so you can watch them. Uh, should you want to, Steve, watch an AFC Wimbledon game, you can watch this weekend's game against Sunderland at Sunderland at the Stadium of Light for 13 bucks, Or you can pay $178 per season to follow your team, your chosen EFL team, for the entire season. 
that's pretty much where I'm at with this question. It's um, it, it, it's difficult to watch um, a lower league team. And I will say I follow, I don't know if you've much experience with it either, Graham, but when you compare it to other streaming services, it's not great. It's super buggy. I, it's really hard to say watch on an Apple TV or or a, or a device like that. Um, ESPN is a lot is a lot better if you want to watch some uh, lower league soccer. Graham, are you familiar with iFollow? I've I've watched a couple of games on iFollow and my my uh, <laughs> my experience wasn't great. I think I got maybe halfway through one game and then it stopped working. Um, but that's still probably better than my success rate with with my team. I mean, I'm I'm listening to this. Ryan, um, and I don't think Sterling Albion get on ESPN Plus very often. <laughs> um, last season actually was 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 great from a, from a, my perspective. I don't I don't get to see them very often. Sterling Albion normally at normal times I would just follow them through the, the Twitter feed and then get highlights on YouTube and whatever's written on the the club forum. Occasionally I'll read the newspaper and see what they've written about the team, but. Last season, they were actually streaming their own games um, and you could buy a streaming ticket and I did that most weekends and that was great. So <laughs> in a strange way, uh, I'm a little disappointed that that's gone. Obviously, it's great that fans are, are going to be back in the back in the stadium. We actually haven't had a game with fans yet, but are going to be back in the stadium. But I'm a little bit disappointed that I won't be able to keep track of them more easily I'll and have just to go to, back to the newspaper and the forum <laughs> just to be clear in normal times 3 p.m kickoffs i think it's between 3 and 5 p.m in the uk you're not allowed to broadcast live soccer it's to protect attendances because there are in england there are in england and wales there are 72 league teams uh so you'd be cannibalizing those attendances if you put everything on 3 p.m gave people to watch an option at home or on their tv so that's why it's done basically because there's so much competition and there's a will to get uh, people to go and watch low league soccer graham i have to ask you where do you find the time to watch those games as well because you watch a lot of soccer in the top flights as well uh just a lot of screens <laughs> it's like a minority minority report in my office <laughs> i i hear what graham is saying ryan do you remember the english game uh yes yes the documentary yes Yes, the the 100% accurate documentary. Uh, do you remember how they were getting the results for that game? The Darwin play, the Darwin, like the people of the town, they were getting them like via telegraph that was publicly yeah. announced. That's how I imagine Graham getting the coverage of Sterling. <laughs> it's like he goes to the town center and then there's a town crier who announces the results and maybe also explains the tactics <laughs> a little bit. It's it's that level of, of, of local is what I'm picturing in my mind. Uh, yes. Yeah. That's pretty much it. And Ryan, actually, I wanted to ask you one more thing. We get the question a lot about like the value of, of the FA Cup and the League Cup. Um, and I think I always approach that from like the Man United perspective or from a Premier League perspective. For you, a fan of a lower league club, is that another potential opportunity to get to see your team if they do draw a championship team or a Premier League team to get to see them on TV? I feel like that would be an opportunity that wouldn't otherwise be presented. 100%. Yeah, it's it's a huge opportunity. Huh. Um and it's it tends to be one of the key ways I get to watch my team on 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 ESPN. All right. Um there was a year I think 2 years ago we played West Ham and that was on ESPN. A couple of years before that we played Liverpool and um, when Steven Gerrard was uh, playing for them and Akinfenwa and on all that jazz that that uh that era. So yeah, that's definitely a really good opportunity and it, the FA Cup for lower league teams is is a a huge deal, not least because of the prestige of it, but because of money. If my team, FC Wimbledon, draws Liverpool, that's huge. That play that could pay the wages for a year. So that's why um, that's why that's a really important competition for lower league teams. And then I I I'm surprised I have anything else to say about this question uh, since it was definitely not for me. But I will say this, Ryan, you mentioned I follow. Uh, 
longtime listeners uh, will maybe remember that uh, like uh, Daryl was so hyped about I follow when wolves were in the lower divisions and how it would finally be the chance for him to get to watch his club regularly. And I think he paid the fees and whatever it would have been required. And Daryl was not a person who showed anger and frustration like visibly. That is one of the only things I remember him coming into the office and like swearing about. <laughs> like he, he was so angry yeah. and frustrated by I follow that I just, I felt his like spirit kick me to say like, Hey, Tell him it sucks. So he would not say that, yeah. but I will say uh, TSS officially undecided is how I'll put it when it comes to I follow. Oh, no, I'm pretty decided. It sucks. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, since since, uh, since 2017, it has been available internationally, as I say. It is it is very buggy. Sometimes you just won't get a feed at all. Sometimes like it'll come, up, come back two minutes late. Quite often you don't get commentary at all at the lower level. Quite often there'll be no audio for no particular reason. Yeah, it's bad. It's a badly done product. And I suppose that reflects the amount of investment that's put into it. Uh, that's all I can say. Um, so yeah, but we've we've yeah. taken an official TSS position on that product, though, Toby. You should be proud. There we go. And hope they're not a sponsor. Uh, yeah, well, let's hope ESPN sponsors us before I followed us. Indeed, indeed. Thank you, Steve, for that question. And um, oh, by the way, Joe, I was going to ask Joe. Um, with the poo-poo platter of uh, alternate leagues or non-top five divisions, I should say, on ESPN, do you find yourself dipping into the Belgian league now and then, and to, to sort up your knowledge of the of the far reaches of Europe? I wish I could say the answer is yes, but no, not not really. I spend much more time watching USL on ESPN right. Plus because I watch a decent amount of Phoenix so, Rising so yes, here in Arizona. The answer, <laughs> but but I mean that's not that's not like far-reaching European leagues, right? Yeah. I am I'm really yeah. grateful that ESPN Plus has all those USL games. It's it's awesome, and I recognize now even more after this discussion that that's not true everywhere. I was hoping for a, a quick uh, Lowry breakdown of the Swedish Al Svenskan, but that will have to wait, I suppose, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> Next question here. Uh, Garen Green asks us, or says, Barcelona has a 50% sell-on fee clause for Conrad de la Fuente. 50%! Is this the biggest sell-on fee percentage evs? If not, I editorialize that. He said ever. If not, what are some of the biggest sell-on fees? Now, gents, I don't know what your research has found, but that is a humongous sell-on fee. Uh, and a sell-on fee is basically to to sum it up, it's a it's added to contracts uh, contracts, excuse me, uh, of, of of youngsters when when a player is sold to another club. So basically, that's very poorly explained. When club X sells to club Y, club X will eventually get a cl- a cut when Club Y sells to Club Z. That's even more confusing. Taylor, see if you can make it more confusing for me. I think I think I can make it slightly less confusing because uh, I, I, in reading about this more, I finally learned what they actually say. It's they retain uh, like interest in the player's rights. So essentially they will retain 20% interest in a player so that when that player is sold, the club who is doing the selling will keep 80% and that 20% interest is reflected with the uh, club that inserted that clause getting 20% of that then sell on fee. Uh, I think that makes sense, but it's yeah, yeah, basically like retaining interest in players rights and players images and all that type of thing. Uh, in terms of, is it the biggest, I think it's a, it's a slightly confusing question not to add even more nuance to this one, because when you're talking about the biggest sell on fees, yeah, then different. you're talking about the money that is actually made from the sell-ons, and that's a different thing because that then relates to what the actual kind of transfer value is for. Like Raheem Sterling, I think, when he was sold from Liverpool to Man City, 
QPR had inserted like 20%, I think, but that's 7 million pounds. So the number, like the percentage number is smaller, but the amount that they ended up getting is pretty high. Whereas Conrad de, de la Fuente, if he's then sold for 6 million, 50% is only going to be 3 million. So it's not quite as high, but in terms of the percentage, it was the biggest one I could find. Yeah, I, I found the, the most similar one I could find in terms of percentage was David Bentley, um, who went from Blackburn to Spurs for £15 million in 2008. Uh, according to the research I found, Arsenal took £7 million from that because he was he came from them. Uh, that's nearly half of the £15 million. So not quite 50%, but it's up there. Uh, he played one game for Arsenal. And uh, ironically, his most famous moment for Tottenham was that North London derby, the 4-4 oh, yeah. game, where he scored that outrageous long volley as well. That was in October Such 2008. It's such a good goal in his first season for Tottenham. That's the best I could do. Anyone anyone got anything yep. near that? So there, I've got a 50% one from Scotland. Um, that is what PSG hold on Odson Edward. Um, so it might be slightly different to De La Fuente because I'm not sure whether that's a 50% on the profit or the total fee, but PSG's is on the profit. So Celtic paid £9 million for Odson Edward. A few seasons ago, it looked like they were going to sell Edward for about 30 million. Two seasons ago, it looked like they were going to sell him for 30 million, which would have been a, a healthy sum for Celtic because they would have got 50% of that profit on the 9 million and the other 50% would have went to PSG. Now it's looking a little bit more measly. It's looking like he might go for about 15 million, which is not so great for Celtic. But yeah, that's that's the biggest one. De, De La Fuente and uh, Odson Edward are the two. I've, ne- I've never seen, in terms of percentage, I've never seen it above 50%, whether, whether it's the profit or the total fee. Yeah, maybe this is a very rare instance of good business from Barcelona getting that 50% sell-on fee clause. Uh, they, uh, my, my understanding of the figures is they sold into Marseille, uh, Comrade de la Fuente, for $3.6 million. So they will get 50% of the fee when Marseille sell into West Ham next year for $50 million. So they're going to make $25 million next <laughs> yeah. year um, when, when David Moyes gets that player. Um, Joe, any any advances on that? I just I think it's interesting with sell-on percentages, sell-on clauses, sell-on fees, they can be snags for the, I guess, I guess Marseille in this particular example, looking at Conrad de la Fuente's move from Barcelona to Marseille. That clause can be a bit of a snag for Marseille then to want to move Conrad onto a West Ham unless the fee is really, really high. Like there have been examples in the past where players move from one team to another team and the next move is lined up, but because the sell-on percentage is there, maybe it's not 50%, maybe it's 20 or 25%, it just doesn't make fiscal sense for the club that's selling that player. So I guess that would be club Y in your original example, right? It, it often doesn't make sense for them to sell that player because they're not. It, it's not a good business move. This Conrad one, though, I think actually works out quite well for Barcelona and for Marseille because that fee is so low, three, I mean, three million pounds, three point six million dollars, whatever you want to call it. It doesn't really, or hopefully, it won't prohibit Marseille from making that next move for Conrad. So then he can move to the next club. Marseille can get a nice chunk of change over what they initially paid, and then Barcelona can get half of that transfer fee as well. I think I think this is a good bit of business for everybody. And, and the only other and, things I found that were even like in the neighborhood, and I'm sure there's other ones out there, but uh, I saw an article about Arsenal getting in trouble for using sell-on fees with Chuba Akpom and Joel uh, Campbell, that they were basically structuring it that, like Joel Campbell, I think was if 
the everything was Frosinone, if they sold him on to a non-European club, then the sell-on fee was only 25%, or a non-English club, it was 25%. If they sold to an English club, then it increased to 30 And for Chuba Akpom, it was 40% if he was resold to an English club, but only 30% if sold elsewhere. And so they were using it as a way, I think the ruling was that they were using it as a way to gain a competitive advantage, and that was not allowed. But there we had 25 30 to 40%, but still 50% is a pretty... Uh, high marker. The only other one that I I, I wanted to mention was uh, Southampton, I think, tried to insert one into the Gareth Bale contract, and it didn't end up, like, working out. I forget why it was, but essentially... Oh, they had to waive it. That's what it yes, was. That's they it. were forced yeah. to waive it, and they would have gotten something like twenty million pounds. But because they needed to sign somebody and had financial difficulties, they couldn't, and thus missed out on that one. They, they waived it. They waived it for just one point five million and a goalkeeper who then never played yes. for them. And then a few years later, eighty million pounds to Real Madrid. They would have got uh, twenty million. Spurs so, goalkeeper wow. Tommy Forecast. That is a made-up name. That is a football <laughs> manager FIFA generic <laughs> player name. There's a there's an alternate timeline wow. where Gareth Bale was sold by Tottenham to Birmingham City for three million pounds because that was going to happen at one point because uh, Harry he he was that cursed player. Do you remember he went like eighteen yeah. games without a win and <laughs> Harry Redknapp of the era was trying to get rid of him so there would have been a point where that 1.5 million that Southampton took would have been a 50 percent uh so they they, uh, they might have done all right if that if that timeline had panned out unfortunately the one that did pan out didn't do so well for the Saints and sell-on fees do sound slightly shady but uh we should remind you that it is article 21 of FIFA's regulations on the status and transfer of players the article states that any club that has contributed to the education and training of a player is entitled to receive a proportion of the compensation paid to his former club can I, can I just interject that what, what you're saying there about um sell-on fees sounding a bit shady i totally agree however for smaller countries they've actually been really really important i'm coming at this obviously from the scottish perspective so hibs hold a giant sell-on fee on on john mcginn um it's about 20 25 percent um the, there's a number of players um, who have gone from Scotland down to the Premier League with big sell-on fees? So even though Scottish clubs are not getting massive fees for those players, they are they are negotiating those those clauses and those contracts, and they've been really really valuable in a number of cases. Yeah, I think it was Lahav when Pogba was transferred got some amount of money that like financed their academy for another yeah. five years because of those kind of restrictions. And I think you hear about that Belgium. It seems to happen a lot that. Clubs will continue to benefit from players being sold and sold and sold because of that uh, training compensation and solidarity, but also sell-on clauses. So it can definitely benefit those uh, lower league teams, those smaller clubs as well, for sure. Taylor, I don't think we're allowed to mention Le Havre and Paul Pogba without alerting the uh, TSS fire truck of lawyers, by the way. Just so you know. <laughs> oh, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Thank you very much, Garen, for that question. One further question for this ep. And boy, is it a doozy oh, no. from Derek Light. Here we go, guys. Strap in. How were Man City, who are not in serious debt, in breach of FFP rules, but Barcelona, who are in serious debt, not in violation of FFP? Wasn't FFP designed to protect clubs from this exact situation? Asks Derek. 
Uh, and it was how were Man City, not how are Man City in serious uh, breach of FFP, as they were, was it 2014 when they originally got their um, their big naughty, uh, placed on the naughty step? In 2014, they posted combined losses of £149 million for the first two seasons that were assessed under FFP rules. And just to be clear here about FFP uh, and what it means and how you get uh, stung by it, the current rules as they are limit clubs' maximum losses to 30 million euros over a three-year period. It's assessed over a three-year period, as long as 25 million euros of that loss is covered by an owner. And I found this on the BBC, which clarifies it. It says that total losses of 30 million euros are allowed as long as clubs have owners who could cover such amounts. And we've done a bit of back and forth uh, on the TSS chat here before we went on air about the reasons for this question. It's a very good question indeed. And from what I can see, gents, there's a relatively simple explanation. I say relatively simple. We're talking about FFP. But it's a case of timing. Manchester City, in my in my view of the situation here, were busted because they they broke the rules when FFP was taken very seriously back in 2014 and they they exceeded that 30 million euros um uh, average over three year period by quite a long way that 149 million over two years barcelona uh and their serious uh, financial ruin that they're in at the moment reportedly i think it was this week they said they're in 1.3 billion euros of debt they might benefit from the fact that in June 2020 uefa relaxed ffp rules they gave a holiday to ffp due to COVID. So what UEFA said back then, last summer in 2020, they temporarily permitted to put uh, clubs to put more money in to cover increased losses uh, due to the shutdown of soccer uh, by the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's an emergency measure. So by my reckoning, Joe, and I'll let you add on this because you had uh, some good points in, in the chat as well. By my reckoning, Barcelona's three-year period and the, the, uh, the serious situation you're in now has overlapped with this FFP holiday. So they're not in breach of FAP right now because nobody is. How do you feel about that, Joe? No, I think that's spot on, Ryan. And and it looks like from what UEFA has said that FFP is going to be changed potentially pretty significantly after COVID-19, whenever on earth that's going to be or whenever they decide that's going to be. So Barcelona might have absolutely finessed this entire situation. Uh, in a very, very strange and unfortunate way, given the circumstances around basically, them. The part- basically, when FFP brick is brought back, UEFA is going to go, how much are Barcelona in debt by over three-year three, three year period? Someone's going to shout, 700 million euros. Going, right, <laughs> so you're allowed 700 million euros of debt over three-year period. UEFA <laughs> owner. The part, the part that I don't fully understand, though, is that is that Barcelona was a billion euros in debt before COVID-19, before FFP financial fair play was relaxed. And so that is, that's interesting because that's a whole nother can of worms. Why were they allowed to continue operating at that point? The only thing I can think of is that Barcelona has debts that go back a long time, that, that likely go back even before FFP was introduced in what, 2012? And, and fully introduced, I think, in, in 2015 with those regulations being uh, in full effect at that point. So the only thing I can think of is that because it is this three-year rolling period and because FFP started after Barcelona had starting, started accruing debts, they're allowed under the way that FFP is constructed and the way that its regulations are written, they're allowed to operate with debt that has existed previously, if that makes sense, because yeah. of the timing. Again, this is a situation of timing because of of how everything lined up on this timeline. 
they're they're fine with the way FFP is written. And it doesn't feel – this is very much letter of the law, not spirit of the law, right? And it is even still a very confusing situation. But that is – that's what I could work out about Barcelona still being in debt before COVID helped them in a weird way. Um- Graham, on your Minority Report screen setup, you swiped away your uh, your Scottish soccer for a second and brought up Barcelona's books, did you not? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is such a hot topic. I don't know if you caught my my watch, Siri, there, uh, trying to have it say uh, in the middle of Joe's Joe's, <laughs> Joe's answer there. But uh, yeah, don't don't go into the Barcelona books. It's a dark, dark place. <laughs> I spent about half an hour there last night, and oh boy, I saw some things. What did you what did you see? Please elaborate. Oh, just a lot of bad numbers. <laughs> do you, when you say bad numbers, do you mean like we're all presuming that Barca are gonna sort of wriggle out of this? Like you know, you know yeah. when there was a president and he sort of just seemed to wriggle out of every situation. It feels like this club are gonna do that as well, but there are numbers that look very, very troubling. And obviously when things get back on track, Barcelona have the potential to make a lot of money and they undoubtedly will do, but they're in a hole, aren't they? Oh, they're in it. I don't think a football club has been in as big a hole as Barcelona are in now. And it really kind of, obviously I know they're in trouble, but when I was looking through their, their books, and I don't pretend to be um, a financial expert, but even a layman can figure out they're in serious bother. I mean, everything turned in 2019-20. They were actually profitable up until that point, but their their, their uh, wages to revenue ratio was still so so great. It was still above 80% for a number of years, really since Messi signed that, that giant... 555 million euro contract that has that has just ended um but 2019 20 100 million euros of losses then it then it goes up to you know 500 or 450 million euros of losses now just earlier that uh, this week Juan Laporta was saying they have a negative net worth FC Barcelona has a negative net worth of over 400 million euros um and I'm as a sorry to make so many um, Scottish references on one podcast, but I, I've kind of seen this tale play out before with uh, with Rangers, where the presumption was, ah, they're too big, they're too big to 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 go into liquidation, like Enron, too big, too big to, to bankruptcy. Yeah, and everyone thought that until the day Rangers did go into liquidation and everything collapsed. So I'm getting serious vibes with that about Barcelona. The fact that you know Messi is now off the books and Juan Laporte is still saying they're in such deep trouble is really really worrying for them well graham if you're saying there that um they were profitable until was it 2020 then that kind of explains why they haven't been uh, touched by ffp regulations because it's been a three-year period and right now um everyone's on holiday from uh suffering uh from ffp rules so that kind of explains why they haven't been hit by it but um taylor perhaps it's important to note that they are in breach of ffp rules but not uefa's la ligas Mm -hmm. and that's what this whole registration situation is about yeah, exactly. Because then it's La Liga who are punishing them. La Liga don't, as far as I know, have jurisdiction over what Man City do. So I think th- they- that's what we're seeing. Is I mean, I mean, I'm sure they would like to, uh, but I think that that's that is a key distinction for me. Is that it's the league. Uh, like putting these rules into place and punishing them accordingly. And I think the league then requiring them to open up their books and be a little bit more transparent. It makes me wonder, Graham, to your like to your comparison to Rangers. Do you think uh, this is a genuine question because I don't I don't really have an opinion myself, I don't think at least. is like how much of this is just that it's Barcelona and not Man City or PSG, clubs where I think there is a presumption that 
Yeah, they they are big clubs now. I don't know if they were big clubs historically, but they have the money there that we know is kind of allowing them to operate the way they are. And I feel like there's almost an element of we just assume that those two teams are breaking the rules because they're spending so much money. And even as far as like Man City goes, I think a lot of the kind of uh, like investigation into their finances comes about because of football leaks, because they're hacked, because there are documents taken that are then basically illegally turned over make like argue that if you want to but it feels to me like like you can kind of look at those two clubs city and psg and think like you guys are are new money like we don't really know what's going on here it feels like you're breaking the rules but they're barcelona they've been around for forever and they have this proud footballing tradition they're an institution they would do things the wrong way it just i do sort of feel like there is an idea that these clubs if not are too big to fail, then at the very least have existed for so long that they, they know how to do this. They know how to do it the right way, so we don't really need to worry about it until suddenly we do. Yeah, and I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, and I think with, with Barcelona, um, kind of, Ryan, what, what you were saying there, which is which is a prevalent opinion, which is, you know, they, oh, they'll get they'll get back on track. Well, <laughs> kind of what evidence do we have from the last few years to to suggest that they that Barcelona know what they're doing? I know there's a new regime with Juan Laporta, but you know a lot of the same figures still at that club. And yeah, I think um, that with there is definitely a good guys bad guys dynamic. One thing I would say is that Chelsea are not they don't tend to get drawn into the same they, they don't tend to face the same allegations that PSG and City do. And I know the dynamic's slightly different because. With City and PSG, it's nations, you know, Gulf Emirati that, that won those clubs, whereas Chelsea, it's an individual, you know, a rich individual. But nonetheless, you know, it's, it's a similar sort of situation taking a... Chelsea were a bigger club than, than City, but still not the biggest club in turning them into what they are now. And so they don't tend to face a lot of the same criticism. I do wonder what, what that's down to, or is that just down to the fact Chelsea are actually doing things by the book and there isn't as much dirt to throw at them? But it's, yeah. it's an interesting discussion. I mean, they had the, the transfer ban not too long ago yeah, for bringing true. in youth players the way they weren't supposed to. So I wonder yeah. if maybe getting a relative slap on the wrist was a reminder that like, oh, people are actually paying attention. It keeps, I keep going back to the, the line in Goodfellas where uh, Henry Hill's wife is concerned, uh, Karen is concerned that he's going to go to jail. And he responds, uh, nobody goes to jail unless they want to, unless they make themselves get caught. And I feel like a little bit like PSG and Men City are not going to jail. They will spend 50 million on lawyers instead of paying the penalty fees to make sure that nobody ends up saying they did anything wrong. Whereas with Barcelona, yeah. I feel like it's so obvious at this point. They sort of made themselves get caught that was kind of wasn't that in the man city all or nothing i think we saw um the, the chairman saying words to the effect of i'd rather spend 100 million on loyals yep. and pay a 50 million fine yeah. so that's their yep. that's their perspective what we're and doing to some is extent, right. I, th- I think that's also part of it is that when you know this organization has almost literally all the money in the world to be able to like <laughs> fight us tooth and nail they have more money than fifa does i like i'm assuming not in man city but the the ownership group behind them like you have to take that in consideration and it's a sad thing because i don't i wish you didn't but i think if you're fifa if you're uefa and you're aware of the influence and power they have you're maybe gonna have to kind of pause and reevaluate your approach when that team doesn't just immediately respond with like, you're right, we did something wrong, we apologize, but instead responds with, we'll fight you on that. <laughs> I think that's not a response they were ready for. And to some extent, I feel like Barcelona are at their lowest point in terms of ability to fight, especially after the Super League, that I think there's an idea of like, we can go after them a bit more now, even if it's not UEFA doing it yet. But I think there is an, a much more public awareness of what's going on with Barcelona because their books have been made that much more public. 
Yeah, I'm not sure they're going to be able to afford hundred million dollar lawyers. Actually, Barcelona. probably not. They're probably going to end up with Giuliani. We'll, <laughs> we'll just send Griezmann to the law firm. Oh, PK will do it, won't he? PK will save them. I bet he's got a law degree somewhere. Did you all <laughs> see the story that uh, I forget? Like, there's a bailout coming for clubs that are like in the European club or whatever it is. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, the ECA? Yeah, that like there's a bailout coming for all the clubs that are in there, but Barcelona left that to join the Super League. So they, I think, technically are not entitled to that to those funds either. Oh, do you know who the the chairman of the ECA is? The PSG chairman. Ah, perfect. (laughs) Perfect. 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 It was Agnelli, wasn't it, before that? Yeah, Yeah. it was Agnelli, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What a what a vicious web we spin in this game. Um, oh, boy. Graham, Joe, Taylor, let's give ourselves a pat on the back. We came out of an FFP question with our heads above water there. I think we did okay. Um, so congratulations <laughs> for that. I think, I think, Derek, hopefully we answered your question sincerely there. And thank you to everybody else who submitted a listener question. We do really enjoy doing these shows, so keep those listener questions coming in, ladies and gents. But for now, that concludes this episode. Taylor Rockwell, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure indeed. Sorry, I'm reeling from learning that uh, Kareem Benzema has just put pen to paper on a new contract with a release clause of 1 billion euros. That what? feels like an Austin Powers joke. Yeah, that's quite a lot, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone's beaten that one. I don't. Was, was Messi that sounds like a billion, challenge for PSG. <laughs> Graham. Did, um, did he say, oh, Messi's dad got him a 1 billion euro clause? I want one too. Maybe that was a... I mean, I mean, <laughs> probably, and you know, uh, never mind. I, I was about to make jokes about Kareem Benzema that would probably get me sued. So I would just right. say, like, maybe he had some undue influence. You never Let, know. Oh boy, let's cut out of this point. Joseph Lowry, <laughs> thank you so much for your contributions. <laughs> you got it, Ryan. And Graham Rusband, last but not least, thank you very much, sir. And thank you for uh, quelling our answers on the Aberdeen question, too. Very good stuff. No problem at all, Ryan. It's always good fun. Thank you, listener. We'll be back shortly. Bye. 